Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and I got a lot of news to catch you up on. We had a couple weeks there where we did an extended interview, uh, which was great, of course, uh, but in that time, some things have happened, and uh, actually nothing really horrible, uh, but some interesting things that I wanted to bring your attention to. Uh, for example, we got um, some more really good news about Firefox. Firefox 70 just came out. They keep rolling out some really cool new features. We're going to talk a little bit about that and how a uh, German cybersecurity agency uh, recently rated Firefox as their top pick for most secure browser. And a uh, little bit of caveats to that, but we'll talk about what that means. Uh, we'll talk about NordVPN, N-O-R-D VPN one of the most popular VPN services on the planet, one that I've recommended in the past, but it was recently hacked, or I should say, and there's some air quotes around that hack. I'll, uh, I'll explain what I mean about that in a minute. We'll talk about how the, all the um, internet service providers, the ISPs, are lobbying really hard against this coming private DNS built into both Chrome and Firefox, which shouldn't be terribly surprising, but it's interesting to kind of pick that apart and, you know, and kind of expose the, the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt kind of angles that a lot of these companies, you know, bring to Congress um, when they're trying to get their way. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about yet some more reasons. <laughs> My, you know, you might want to be a little extra careful with how you use your little personal speaker private assistants like the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. Talk about uh, some interesting ways that um, some researchers have found out that they might be able to subvert those devices for nefarious purposes. Uh, Apple has just released uh, its next big update to its Macintosh operating system called Catalina. There's been a lot of bugs with that rollout, um, but there are also some really cool features that have to do with security and privacy that I want to talk to you about there. Uh, then, uh, to wrap up, I'm going to, for the tip of the week, I'm going to tell you about why I am dropping Dropbox and what I'm going to be re replacing it with. Uh, anyway, that's our, that's our show. Since we got a lot to get to, let's, let's get right to it. All right. So first up this week, uh, Firefox keeps churning out the updates and they keep adding more and more privacy and security features that are not only adding the features, but turning them on by default, uh, which if you recall my little diatribe on the tyranny of the default, uh, that's a great thing because a lot of people just never change the defaults. So whatever your, your default settings are is what you get, no matter what your options are. If you don't know about the cool new features you can turn on or just never get around to turning them on, then you may as well not have them. So it's really good that Firefox is starting to not only add these new features, but to have them enabled by default. So let's, let's talk about a few of those, and I've got a couple other little interesting tidbits uh, around Firefox. So uh, in, in Firefox 70, which just came out, and by the way, if you've got Firefox installed, it should be auto-updating. Sometimes it'll force you to restart the app to have the updates take effect, but um, it's always trying to update the background, which is great. So here, here are the few uh, security and privacy-related features that are great. So uh, now, built in to, and on by default, uh, even in, the, I think, the lowest level settings of Firefox, it's got built-in social media tracker protection. So social media, in this case, refers to Facebook, Instagram, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Twitter, TweetDeck, LinkedIn, and YouTube, which is certainly all the big ones. Uh, and as I've mentioned on the show before, when you go to those sites and you see the little Pinterest, you know, add to Pinterest buttons or the little Facebook like buttons, those all those little badges, all those little things on the web page, even if you don't interact with them, they're basically tracking you. And they're tracking you whether or not you have an account with those with those particular companies or not. Facebook in particular has been shown to keep what they call shadow profiles. I'm not sure if that's what Facebook calls them, but that's what the, uh, the news folks have uh, dubbed them, uh, these shadow profiles on people that aren't even Facebook users. So um, yeah, they're tracking all over the place. So now built into Firefox automatically, even on the lowest privacy settings, uh, they are blocking all of those, which is wonderful. They have, if you've, if you've noticed, uh, Firefox, when you go into preferences and you find the security and privacy settings, there are three levels of protection. There's, there's standard, strict, and custom. And Firefox has been adding some of these features in the past, so I was on custom because I wanted to make sure I got these features on. Um, some of them were only available in custom, but now they're available by default in the, in the standard and strict uh, version. So um, take a look at your settings on Firefox if you haven't recently. Um, I use strict. Um, you know, that might cause some websites to act funny. Uh, I haven't really had much trouble with it, but, uh, you know, for any given site that's acting funny, you can 
go up to the address bar right next, just to the left of where you see the address where the little lock icon and other little symbols are. If you click that, it'll show you what's being blocked and what's not. And you can either temporarily or permanently for that site disable um, the strict tracking and see if that changes things. So um, I just go with that by default. And then if something, you know, something acts weird or seems like it's not working right, then I might look into, you know, relaxing those settings to see if that fixes it. Um, and then decide if that's worth, if it's worth it, you know, to leave it permanent or just do it one time thing uh, while I'm there. So anyway, so social media protection is uh, tracking protection is really great to have in there and be on by default. Supposedly, there's also a new privacy protections report right on the website. It says to find it under the Firefox menu, though, on the Mac version, I don't see it. And I'm on version 70. Uh, I actually looked around and could not find it. So I'm not sure what maybe that's coming in a future release. I'm not sure. Uh, but eventually what it'll do is if you watch, if you open up the privacy protections report, it'll give you a nice little timeline graph of all the different things that it has blocked for you with your uh, privacy settings over time. And so that's, that, I'm sure that will be an eye opener for a lot of you. So um, that, that's really cool. It's always nice to have some transparency and visibility on what's really going on. And, you know, when these things start, start to get blocked for you by default, you might not realize what all the work it's actually doing for you. So speaking of those little address bar indicators, those little security indicators, in the past, until really in the last two or three years, but prior to that, most websites were not offering HTTPS or secure encrypted connections. Um, a lot of sites just, and because before it used to cost money, and a lot of sites, frankly, were just thinking, yeah, what do I care? I'm not going to spend the money. You know, it's not that big a deal. I'm not going to do it. But it really is kind of a big deal because it not only if you're if you're going to these HTTP with no S websites, all the traffic between you and that site is visible. Uh, think of it as postcards, not letters. And, you know, every bit of data that you send or retrieve uh, potentially is visible to anybody along the path. And worse yet, um, if there's a malicious actor somewhere along that path, they can actually alter what you receive um, and what you send. So they can actually play with um, the traffic, which is not good either. So, uh, Let's Encrypt, which is a consortium of companies like uh, Cisco and um, I think Google and EFF. I, I, I'm probably making this up as I go. Anyway, a lot of companies got together and created this really cool system called Let's Encrypt, which gives out free certificates to any website that wants it, allowing them to very easily in an automated fashion set up HTTPS connections. And because of that, in the last few years, most websites now, I mean, by a vast majority, I think I read 80% now of the top, you know, maybe of the top 1 million websites, 80% or something like that, uh, are now using HTTPS connections, which is wonderful. So now basically it's become the rule and not the exception. And because of that, both Firefox and Chrome are changing what they're indicating in that little address bar icon. Before there used to be a nice green icon for a, of a lock that, you know, is your clue to say, oh, well, that's that's great. This website is actually encrypted when most weren't. But since it's things have kind of flipped on their head now, now that will be the default. So there will be a lock icon probably, but it'll be just be gray, won't be green. But for the websites that are not encrypted, now you're going to see a lock with like a big red slash through it, which you didn't used to see before. So uh, the key thing there is to realize that the, that's not telling you that, oh my gosh, this is a horrible site. It's a bad malware site or you're being hacked or whatever. And it's none of that. All it's saying is that now, by default, um, it's going to call those out as bad because really the default now should be encrypted. Um, so it's going to try to push those websites to get encrypted so that they don't have that big negative red slash next to their web address up on your address bar. So when you see that, don't freak out. It's just kind of a change in what they're showing because of, uh, things out there have just shifted. It's, the, it's now the, the rule instead of the exception. So a couple of interesting reviews about Firefox that I wanted to pass along. Uh, there's this German Federal Office of Information Security. And of course, that's the English title. The acronym is BSI, which of course doesn't match that. I, and I won't even try to pronounce the real German name that leads to BSI because I would totally butcher it. It's I, I'm looking at it right now and shaking my head. I don't even know where to start. So anyway, BSI, it's some sort of a German federal office um, that does uh, information cybersecurity and they put out recommendations mostly for companies. Um, but a lot of the things that they recommend and look into would apply to just regular people like you and I, uh, and they recently tested Firefox, uh, Google Chrome, Microsoft's internet Explorer and Microsoft edge 
for security, and they had a really long list of things like, okay, if it's going to be secure, it's got to have this, 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 and this, probably 20 different things on their checklist. And the only browser to check every single box on their list was Firefox. So, you know, that that's kind of a great little independent verification, uh, vindication for Firefox. Uh, now, they didn't test Safari and a couple of the uh, other browsers that are not quite so mainstream, and some of which are privacy-focused, like Brave. Uh, so they didn't test everything, but they did test the major ones. And of the major ones, Firefox uh, came out on top. So I thought that was interesting. And another website that um, I really like called Restore Privacy has also basically come out and said the same thing. Um, I'll just quote briefly here. It says, Mozilla Firefox is arguably the best browser available that combines strong privacy protection features, good security, active development, and regular updates. The newest version of Firefox is fast, lightweight, and packed full of privacy and security features. It is for this reason that I, and this is the website owner saying this, not me, and this is the reason that I consider Firefox to be the best all-around browser for privacy and security. It remains a solid alternative to some of the other options, such as Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, and Safari. So yeah, it's just a brief thing there. Basically, another independent third party whose focus is privacy says that Firefox comes out on top. So if you haven't switched to Firefox and you're still... God forbid using Chrome, really, uh, you should really consider changing. All right, next up, uh, NordVPN, N-O-R-D, like North, I guess, uh, NordVPN, uh, one of the most popular VPNs on the planet, was a, sort of hacked. Um, so this is this is a really good article. So let me, let me read this to you, and I'll kind of throw in some commentary as I go. This is the kind of review of these scenarios that you really want to see. So again, from RestorePrivacy.com, uh, here's from his report on this. Recently, media outlets have been publishing a barrage of reports concerning the NordVPN hack occurring on a server in Finland. Rumors and allegations have been spreading fast, with NordVPN being one of the largest VPNs on the market. While the news may be alarming to some, the tangible impact of this issue for NordVPN users is quite limited. First, to put things in perspective, this hack affected one NordVPN server in Finland out of a network of, pro of approximately 5,000 servers. Now let's examine what exactly happened to the server. On March 2018, someone posted a TLS certificate. Now TLS is trust, uh, transport layer security, and it's really what's kind of behind things like HTTPS. It's what uh, encrypts the connections. And the certificates are, are what allows your computer and the website to negotiate that encryption as it goes. So anyway, back to the article. Someone posted TLS certificates from NordVPN, TorGuard, and VikingVPN on 8chan. Uh, while the 2018 post seems to have fallen under the radar, the issue recently erupted on Twitter, which culminated in an article from TechCrunch alleging NordVPN had been quote-unquote hacked. When people hear the word hack, they assume the worst, but let's dig deeper. As NordVPN pointed out in their official response, and this is a quote from Nord, it says, the intruder did find and acquire a TLS key that had already expired. With this key, an attack could only be performed on the web against a specific target and would require extraordinary access to the victim's device or network, like an already compromised device, a malicious network administrator, or a compromised network. Such an attack would be very difficult to pull off, Expired or not, this TLS key could not have been used to decrypt NordVPN traffic in any way. That's not what it does. This was an isolated case, and no other servers or data center providers we use have been affected. That's the end of their quote. So, uh, back to the article, it says, This leads us to the next question. Are NordVPN users compromised? Based on all available evidence, the answer appears to be no. NordVPN users have not been compromised by an attacker gaining access to one expired TLS key for a single server in Finland. First, the attacker would not have any access to server logs because NordVPN is a no-logs VPN provider that does not store anything on its servers. NordVPN passed a third-party audit by PricewaterhouseCoopers verifying its no-logs policy. And by the way, those third-party audits are really important, and I'm really glad to see that they're happening, because that's, that's really the only way that we as consumers will ever have any inkling as to whether or not they're telling us the truth. And, you know, even if they think they're telling us the truth, they're actually doing it correctly. Back to the article. Second, NordVPN uses perfect forward secrecy, which generates a unique key for every session using ephemeral Diffie-Hellman keys. Okay, that's technical. Um, but basically what it means is 
just because you have this one key doesn't mean that you'd be able to go back in time and decrypt any uh, previously recorded encrypted conversations. And, and it goes on to say, this means that even with the TLS key, there's little a hacker could even do since the keys are used for server authentication and not traffic encryption. As NordVPN pointed out above, the hacker would need direct access to the user's device or network for an effective attack, which is extremely unlikely. Does this hack even affect anyone? There's no way to be 100% certain with anything, but the answer appears to be no. There's no evidence to suggest traffic or private data from the NordVPN users was exploited in this hack. With no data breach, there's no legal obligation for alerting anyone. And that's the end of the article. Actually, there's more to it, but I didn't, I didn't read all of it. So you know, this is the kind of analysis that we actually need from our news organizations when these things happen. And honestly, this, this article wouldn't even have been necessary had there not been a whole bunch of you know, light your hair on fire, sky is falling, clickbait articles warning how horrible this, you know, NordVPN hack was, when in reality, it really wasn't bad at all. And if this had never come to light, that would have been okay. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to point this out because you know, this is kind of an example of how the mainstream media in a lot of cases gets this stuff wrong or honestly willfully ignores the, the reality of the situation in order to get people to come to their website. So you know, keep that in mind. Uh, whenever these kind of things come up, I will try to be the voice of reason and point these things out. Sometimes, honestly, when these things happen, I don't even report on them because um, it's not worth talking about. But anyway, I thought it was good to kind of take one example of this and, and show why it's not always as bad as they make it sound. All right, next up, internet service providers, ISPs, are really pushing back hard against this new technology being rolled out in Chrome and Firefox browsers called DNS over HTTPS or D-O-H, uh, or as a lot, a lot of people who watch The Simpsons like to point out, it's dope. <laughs> um, so what is it? Just at a high level, DNS over HTTPS, and we've talked about that before. I definitely called it out when Firefox was putting that in their browsers automatically. DNS is like the phone book for the internet, right? So it's domain name, domain name service. When you type in amazon.com, it has to actually look up the IP address for amazon.com. And that is what we, the computer actually uses to send your traffic to Amazon. Because, you know, computers don't work on names. They work on numbers. So uh, this phone book is wide open. And what the DNS that is usually set up by default is your ISP's DNS. And this is all set up before you, behind the scenes, you just hook your computer up. And when your computer's talking to your modem uh, and talking to the internet and gets the IP address, this is all happening behind the scenes without you knowing it. And by default, the ISP, the, the DNS that almost everybody picks by default is their ISP's DNS. You know, the D, the ISP who's giving you your IP address, thankfully says, or helpfully says, oh, you need DNS. Here's use this for DNS. But you can set this yourself at any time, and you can override that choice. And because your ISP is your DNS, they are your phone book, which means that you go to them every time and say, hey, I need to go to Amazon. Where's, where's that again? Or I need to go to Pornhub.com. What's that address again? Or I need to go to PlannedParenthood.com. You know, or I need to go to MedMD or, you know, potentially, you know, sensitive websites that just knowing where you're going says something about you, right? And so the ISPs, of course record all that information and they use that in many cases to monetize you by, you know, either selling that information to third parties or directly using it to target advertising to you, uh, you know, all that kind of crap. So they are not really happy about Google Chrome the most popular browser on the planet and Firefox, probably the second most popular browser on the planet, automatically hiding that information from them now. Uh, and of course they're lobbying Congress against this, and to do so, they're using FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. They're throwing up wrong arguments to confuse the issue in order to put a halt to this and not cut off their cash cow, honestly. So uh, there's, uh, let me read from this article from vice.com. Internet giant Comcast is lobbying U.S. lawmakers against plans to encrypt web traffic that would make it harder for the Internet service providers, or ISPs, to determine your browsing history, according to a lobbying presentation obtained by Motherboard. And by the way, Motherboard and Vice are related. The plan, which Google intends to implement soon, would enforce the encryption of DNS data made using Chrome, meaning the sites you visit. Privacy activists have praised Google's move, but ISPs are pushing back as part of a wider lobbying effort against encrypted DNS, according to the presentation. Technologists and activists say this encryption would make it harder for ISPs to leverage data for things such as targeted advertising, as well as block some forms of censorship by authoritarian regimes. 
Mozilla, which makes Firefox, is also planning uh, a version of this encryption. Quote, and this is a quote from a guy named Marshall Irwin, who's a senior director of trust and safety at Mozilla. Uh, they've quoted him a couple times here. He says, quote, the slides overall, and by the way, the, 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 the basis of this article is that these reporters got a hold of an internal slide deck uh, from Comcast about how they're going to present this to Congress in a way that sound, makes it favorable to them. In other words, try to tell Congress to stop doing this because it's going to affect their bottom line. Uh, anyway, so it says, quote, the slides overall are extremely misleading and inaccurate. And frankly, I would be somewhat embarrassed if my team had provided that slide deck to policymakers. We're trying to essentially shift the power to collect and monetize people's data away from ISPs and providing users with control and a set of default protections, unquote. In the presentation, Comcast paints this type of encryption as something that will fundamentally change the Internet and will centralize power under Google. Quoting from the presentation, it says... The unilateral centralization of DNS raises serious policy issues relating to cybersecurity, privacy, antitrust, national security and law enforcement, network performance, and service quality, and other areas. Congress should demand that Google pause and answer key questions. Why is Google in such a rush? So, <laughs> you can see where they're going with this, right? So, None of that really is true, but let, let me keep reading for the article. It says, Google recently announced it would soon start testing the enforcement of DNS over HTTPS, or DOH. A DNS request is essentially a record of which website someone visited. Generally speaking, with DOH, those requests would be harder to read for anyone intercepting the request, such as a hacker on the same Wi-Fi network, a government agency sitting on the wire, or a user's ISP. The Comcast document, which has been presented to policymakers, says that encrypting browsing data, quote, will cause radical disruption, unquote. It also mentions raising issues for law enforcement. The slide deck does not, however, point out that DNS providers who respond to law enforcement requests can still provide relevant information to authorities. But much of the deck pushes one fundamental premise, that Google is centralizing DNS with its DOH, creating a monopoly over the data and its security. Quoting from the presentation, it says, If Google encrypts and centralizes DNS, ISPs and other enterprises will be precluded from seeing and resolving their users' DNS. Unquote. That's not accurate, though. Google isn't actually forcing Chrome users to only use Google's DNS service, and so it's not centralizing the data. Google is instead configuring Chrome to use DOH connections by default if a user's DNS service supports it. A DNS service helps a web, web browser translate web domains into actual IP, IP addresses to visit. Typically, ISPs will do this for customers, but Google, Cloudflare, and other cybersecurity companies also run their own, their own DNS servers that people can use. Quoting again from uh, that gentleman from Mozilla, he says, What this deck is attempting to do is to take advantage of a lot of anti-Google sentiment that exists right now. Build on top of that an inaccurate account of exactly what we are doing to stop that deployment. The real one truthful point in this ISP lobbying effort is that DOH does represent a fundamental shift in the way the web works, and that's deliberate on our part. And then somebody else at Mozilla um, uh, also wrote, Quote, this is a part of a pretty aggressive campaign we've seen from the ISPs to protect their control over DNS traffic and tracking opportunities it provides them. Either they're doing something with this data today that is not transparent to users, or they're working incredibly hard to protect a future business model. So yeah, so that is exactly what they're doing. So we actually used had some privacy regulations that were going to come online that was going to protect us from this that the Trump administration struck down. Uh, now they basically have carte blanche to watch as much of your web traffic as they want and do whatever they want with that data. And this is, this was one of the big holes in privacy is them knowing every website you're going to. And I think this is really great that Chrome and Firefox are doing this. Now, of course, Chrome, if you're using the Chrome browser, Google makes the Chrome browser. And yes, while they don't, they don't mandate the Google Chrome, Chrome browser will not mandate the use of Google's own DNS. It, that will certainly happen some of the time, but even if it doesn't, the fact that you're using a Chrome browser, which is owned by Google, basically means they don't need DNS to know what you're doing. <laughs> They've already got the browser. So while this is, you know, it is good in one sense for Google to be doing this, it's kind of self-serving. Uh, whereas Firefox is using Cloudflare, and Cloudflare doesn't log any of this stuff and doesn't doesn't monetize any of this information. Uh, so uh, while they're both doing the same thing, uh, it's really obvious that Firefox is, <laughs> is the one who's really doing it for the right reasons. But anyway, it's... Then they've got the ISPs thrown in the mix who are really ticked off that all of a sudden this, you know, this revenue stream is being taken from them and they're trying to create as much fear and certainty and doubt 
to head this off and, or delay it as long as possible. So again, this is another example of how, and you know, who knows what the news actually reports on this, right? There, if the news is actually just regurgitating, you know, some of, the, of what these ISPs are ter- telling Congress, you might think, oh yeah, that kind of sounds bad. I don't, I don't want Google to, to take over all the world's DNS. That doesn't sound good, but that's not really what's going on. And there are, you know, ulterior motives behind uh, what they're doing because it's losing revenue for them. Okay. Plenty more to get to. Let's keep rolling. Um, so I just saw an interesting article, uh, in Ars Technica about some researchers, some security researchers who have found an interesting way to hack our smart devices, our particular, our smart speakers like uh, Amazon Echo and Google Home. Uh, those two in particular, they have shown that they can through some rather interesting methods, turn them into true eavesdropping devices. And in one case, in some cases, even phishing devices. So I'm not going to read the whole article about this, but basically what they did is if you've ever, if you own a little Google home device or an Amazon echo device, um, they could do some cool things. I mean, just out of the box, you can ask them the weather, you can ask them to set a timer, you can ask them, you know, Wikipedia facts, all that kind of stuff, but you could extend what those devices can do by adding little plugins. Amazon echo calls them skills. Uh, Google Home calls them something else, but they're basically extensions or plugins. And you have to go to the little app on your device and you can install these things and you could do, you know, maybe you could do extra things. Now you can do horoscopes or now you can connect to Spotify or, you know, you can add these little things that um, little glue pieces or little extensions that will allow these devices to be even more helpful. Unfortunately, these extensions, like every other extension that I've ever talked about on this show, whether it be a browser extension or a little plugin for an application that you're running these are from third-party developers, and a lot of times they are not scrutinized. And you just go to the extension store or the, or the Amazon skill store. You look through the hundreds of possible options, and you see the ratings, and, oh, the, everybody loves this one. This is really cool. Let me install this. And they're just not always fully vetted. And they do allow a malicious actor to create bad plugins. So as an example in this case, they did, they did two different things. First of all, they had this horoscope app and you would ask it your, your horoscope. And then it would actually give you an error message saying that you know, this, this service is not available in your country. And it plays this little beep boop sound that makes it sound like it's done, which is the same sound you get on every other question you give to this device when it's done answering your question. And what that's supposed to mean is that it stopped listening, but they wrote this app differently. They actually faked that sound to make you think it was done. Then they inserted a minute of silence and then it comes back with this error message saying, or actually it's not an error message. It's just, it's this message in the, in the Google home or the Amazon Alexa voice saying there's been, there's now an update for your software, uh, that is ready to be installed. So say the word start followed by your password and we will get that update installed for you. It will never, ever, ever ask for your password. This was fake. So what this thing was doing was it kept recording, gave it a long enough pause so that you would think it's something new and different. Like what you just did is do over and what, and something else is coming up. And it's supposedly autonomously saying, Hey, there's, there's an update. You need to get this. Just give me your password and I'll install it for you. Well, it was fake. <laughs> They're just asking, it's a phishing attempt. They're asking for your password and they will record that and send it off to their server. And now they've got your Amazon or your Google password. Uh, one of the other ones was just more of an eavesdropping, eavesdropping app, and they used a random number generator. So that's the kind of thing I used to do this with my daughters all the time. You know, Amazon. You know, um, I don't want to say the a word, but you know, Amazon Echo, flip a coin, and it would say heads or tails or you know, Amazon Echo, pick a number between one and ten, and it would come back with a random number. Sometimes we would use this to make some, you know, make some family decision, right? <laughs> that, you know, none of us could decide on something, so we ask it to do it for us. Uh, so this random number generator uh, app plugin skill uh, was fake. Uh, and sure, it would give you a random number, but at, when it was over, it would pretend to stop listening, but actually kept listening. So it was basically, once you triggered it, it would sit there and give you a number and then record everything you said for as long as it could and send that information back up. Uh, I don't know how long that lasted, um, but you know, it's bad no matter what, right? So anyway, the whole, the whole point of this is you really need to be careful about what applications and extensions and things that you install, uh, especially free ones, I guess, maybe to watch out for Though there's, you know, there are plenty of free ones out there that are just free because they're free. 
but you know, don't do it on a whim. Don't just do it for the heck of it. And for God's sakes, when you're done, if you don't really like it or don't use it, remove it. And, and I'll just say that again, you know, go to your browser, go to any place where you've installed extra plugins or applications or extensions. And if you're not using it, delete it. You can always re-download it or reinstall it later. The more, the more of these things you have, I mean, if they're broken, if they are, have bugs and don't get fixed, or, you know, they could actually be malicious. Um, you don't want those things out there any more than you have to. So reduce it to the bare minimum of what you need uh, and try to go for applications and extensions and things that are made by reputable companies. All right, one more little uh, news item, and then we'll get to our tip of the week. So Apple, uh, as it does usually in the fall, just released the latest big operating system update for Mac OS. Uh, the previous one was called Mojave, and the new one's called Catalina. Now, I've got to say right off that this release has been really troubling. Apple is usually much better than this, and but I've got to say it, when it happens, uh, this update, this rollout for Catalina has been really bad. They, they bungled a lot of things. They've had to, uh, you know, put out patch updates really quickly. I mean, there must've been four updates to Catalina since it came out and it just came out a month ago. So that's bad. I, I think it's kind of settled down. I think I got most of the issues resolved. Uh, so it's, you know, I would say go ahead and do it. And one of the reasons to do it is so it's got some really interesting, um, privacy and, and security new features built in. So I just want to talk about those real quick. And this is a little bit of an, um, a bridged version of an article from Wired Magazine. So first off, improved data protection. Mac OS Catalina makes apps jump through more hoops, as in forcing them to ask for permission if they want to access the parts of your computer where documents and other personal files are kept. That includes iCloud Drive and external, external drives, for example. Another change, which isn't as visible to end users, is that Mac OS itself is now being stored on a separate disk volume. In other words, it's isolated from the rest of your data and programs, so apps won't be able to mess with important system files. They simply won't have access to them. All right, so let me stop and analyze that for a second. So basically, Apple is using least privilege principles. They're walling and segregating things off and, and allowing access only to the things that absolutely need access to prevent tampering and to prevent malicious apps from doing things they shouldn't, which is, which is really great. And this is, these are just the kind of incremental security changes that have been coming in operating systems over the years that just keep making them that much more secure, which is, which is great. Next up enhanced gatekeeper technology and gatekeeper is kind of like Mac OS's built in antivirus. It's, they don't tout it as such. Um, and it's not really a full fledged antivirus, but it is a security mechanism built into the operating system. And Catalina has some enhancements to this technology from the article. One of the biggest under the hood security upgrades to macOS Catalina is the gatekeeper component of the operating system. Basically the part of macOS that's in charge of keeping viruses and malware off your system. It's now harder than ever for malicious software to do damage to a Mac computer. In particular, any software installed outside of the Apple approved walled garden that is the Mac app store is now checked every time it runs for malware and other problems. Previously, this would only happen the first time the app launched. Code from these apps must also be submitted to Apple by developers to be pre-approved as safe, a process known as notarization. What's more, programs now need to specifically request permission to get access to record what you're typing or to record what's happening on the screen. That's on top of existing permission management for access to your Mac's location, webcam, microphone, and more. So you probably, if you've already installed Catalina or when you do, you're going to notice a lot more pop-ups saying, hey, this application is trying to access this in the background. Do you want them, do you want them to do this? And, it, you know, that's, which is great. So in other words, it's blocking access to important things like your camera, your microphone, being able to take pictures of what's on your screen, report your location, all these kinds of things. And it's making sure, first and foremost, that you're aware that these apps are requesting these permissions and are trying to, to access these things. You know, because if you're playing some game and all of a sudden the game says it wants to know your location or it wants to activate your microphone when the game has no no voice component or anything involved, that's fishy, right? So it's calling attention to these things and making sure you're aware that these applications are trying to do these things. Whereas in the past, it would just do them in the background and wouldn't even notify you. So it's really a more of a transparency thing. And that's a double check, which is really good to force you to, you know, to say, yes, I'm going to allow this app to do this. There's still going to be some confusion. Uh, some of there are things that's going to request permission for. You're going to say, I don't really get that. And uh, because they, they, they say it in kind of funny ways. So you might say no, and then all of a sudden that app's not doing what you think it's supposed to do. And you may have to go and uh, tweak that technology. But it's, you know, it's much better to be safe. Um, so this, this is a nice uh, and welcome change to its built-in anti-malware technology. 
two more things. One is called Find My Smarts. There's a new app in iOS 13, iPadOS, and macOS Catalina simply called Find My. It's the place to find out where your devices have gone, and a little confusingly, where your friends and family are too. The new service lets you find a Mac after you've lost it or had it stolen by tracking down its location on a map. Even if the missing computer isn't connected to the web, Apple anonymously and invisibly enlists an army of iPhones, MacBooks, and other Apple gear owned by other people to try to detect your Mac's low-energy Bluetooth signal. If another Apple product passes by, you'll be able to know where in the world it went. So let me stop there. That This is really cool. So basically your Apple devices now, the modern Apple devices, emit this little low-energy Bluetooth signal that's kind of a, a little beacon. And you and if you followed me on the show, you know that those beacons oftentimes are used to track you. Uh, your, your phone... You know, anything that's got Bluetooth or Wi-Fi built in, it's constantly broadcasting these little signals that are picked up by other things. And if they're not careful and they and they transmit in a unique identifier, that that signal transfer that's trying to behind the scenes let you know if there's something interesting that you might want to connect to, like a Wi-Fi hotspot uh, or a, you know some Bluetooth device you might want to pair with. Um, it's trying to be helpful, but in the meantime, it's also announcing your, your location with a unique identifier, identifier everywhere you go. Um, so you might think these beacon things that are constantly now on would be, would be bad, but Apple has come up with this really, really clever way to, uh, encrypt those Bluetooth beacons in such a way that they can be passed along through the internet network and back to your computer, to your find my app, and then decrypted such that all those people along the way don't really know what they're seeing and can't, it, it, it's not identifiable. It doesn't allow them to be tracked, but what does happen is even if your Mac is, it is closed. And I, I think even if it's turned off, it still sends out this very, very low energy Bluetooth beacon. So that if your device is lost or stolen and any other Mac in the area that has this technology, Mac or iPhone or iPad comes within the area, it's automatically listening for any other devices that are transmitting these little beacons. So all your Mac, all these Apple devices are basically helping you to track your own devices without giving that information away to all the other devices that are doing the helping. It's, re it's really cool. So anyway, it's just another great thing that Apple has done to help you find your devices if they're lost or stolen and doing it in a really privacy protecting way. It's really quite amazing. So that's a, re that's a really cool feature. All right, and finally, uh, secure activation lock. Secure Activation Lock comes to all Macs with Apple's T2 chip installed, which is those sold in the last year or two. Previously available on iPhones and iPads, it means only you can get into your Mac, and it lets you effectively brick it remotely. And by bricking something, it means make it completely unusable. That makes it less appealing to would-be thieves who would have to break it down and sell the parts rather than reuse it. So again, let me explain what that means. So... Modern Macs have this new T2 chip, and I forget what the T stands for, but it's some special security chip built into uh, the device. And if you've ever, like, recently tried to sell a phone or trade in a phone, an iPhone or an iPad, you you know, the when you trade it in, like, the Apple genius will tell you, okay, you've got to turn off Find My iPhone. And what that is is that that's an activation lock. So it, with that turned on, nobody else can use that device but you. And if you fail to log, if you fail to log out before you give away or throw away or sell a device, that other person won't be able to use it at all. So it's a security measure built into Apple devices, and now it's also part of macOS. So if you've got a modern Mac machine or a laptop, uh, you now can lock that device and remotely wipe that device if necessary, if it's lost or stolen. Uh, and furthermore, whoever stole that device or whoever finds that device, if they want to try to keep it and use it for themselves will find that they can't do anything with it. It's locked. Um, and, and until you get it back and type in your password or whatever, it's unusable to anybody. And all they could really do at that point is take it apart and sell it for parts, um, which is not nearly as lucrative as, you know, being able to sell a fully functional device to somebody else. All right, now for the tip of the week. I had kind of a longer story I was going to tell, but it, it would take too long. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, maybe I'll save that for a future date. But basically what I want to talk about is Dropbox. And Dropbox really is a great service. It's been around for a long time. I've used it probably since it came out because I am a person who has multiple, multiple computers. You know, I've got at least two personal ones, two, two uh, for work uh, and multiple other portable smart devices. And so it's very helpful for me to be able to 
synchronize my files across some files across those devices. If I want to, you know, work on a resume at home, but then I need to be able to access it from my laptop where I'm someone else where I might want to finish working on it, or I want to turn it in for a, a job at work that I'm trying to apply for within the company. You know, I can get to it from all these devices. It's all the same file and the way Dropbox works and all of these, and there's a lot of these sync technologies uh, out there now is you create a special folder or actually the service, when you install, it creates a special folder for you. Uh, in this case, it's your Dropbox folder. And for every computer that you install Dropbox on and you sign into, whatever files are in that folder will exist on every one of those devices. So if you change it on one, you change it on all of them. Uh, if you put a file in, that file shows up on all your computers. If you remove it, it's deleted from all the computers from that folder. And it, so that can, like I said, it can be very handy. There's a lot of times when that is something um, that will allow you to well, share files across devices and with other people for that matter. I can share files with my with my daughters, with my mom, using the same technology. Well, so Dropbox is great. I've used it for a long time. However, in recent years, Dropbox is really starting to get intrusive. For example, at one point on my phone, a new version got installed and it said, hey, would you like to automatically back up all your photos to Dropbox? And I said, no, I, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I back up my photos other, in other ways. If you have Microsoft Office installed on your Mac you, and Dropbox, you may have noticed that all of a sudden there's this little Dropbox badge at the side of every document you bring up. And these pop-ups saying, hey, would you like to save all your, you know, your documents in Dropbox? No, 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 I don't. <laughs> and But so it's getting more and more intrusive. It's getting more handsy, as I like to say. I didn't ask for this. You can't, it's hard to turn these things off. And it's just trying to integrate itself into everything, which, you know, I guess if you really trust this, the system, can be helpful, but there's a couple things going on here. So first of all, Dropbox, while it does encrypt your stuff in transit and at rest on their servers, it holds the keys, not you. So it actually can look through all of your documents. Why would it do that? Well, you know, obviously law enforcement, if they were served a, a warrant or subpoena or something, or perhaps just ask nicely, I don't know what their policies are. They could turn over anything that you've got in your public folder. And by the way, they could turn off, turn over anything that you've deleted from that folder because they keep copies of that, even after you delete it for some period of time. In other words, you can undelete a file from your Dropbox folder, which really means they've got it. They've had it the whole time. They just haven't shown it to you. They pretend like it's gone, but it's still there. But more to the point, they can actually sift through all your documents, kind of like Google does with your email and, and your Google Docs, you know, looking for interesting information about you that they might be able to maybe use for advertising. And second, the more things they offer to automatically store for you, the more space you will need. And you'll, at some point, quickly run out of the free space they give you and need to buy more. And it's not cheap to buy more space on Dropbox. And then, so for me, I, I knew this. And I've, there's, I've actually been using, in parallel, another service, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. And now that I'm going to switch to exclusively. And the reason was, the final straw for me was this. So I got a brand new laptop recently. Uh, which is the story that I'll have to say for another time. Uh, and on this laptop, I went to install Dropbox because I use it all the time. And when I did, it says, hey, great, you know, you've installed Dropbox. You know, we only support three devices. So I need you to go through this list of devices that you've got Dropbox installed on and deactivate 14 of them. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I've got 17, apparently, or 16 devices that use Dropbox. And now some of these I don't have anymore. So it remembered every device I've ever installed it on. And, and so, you know, some of these devices are no longer in my control, but I have probably six or seven devices easy uh, for which I've installed Dropbox and use Dropbox. And the free version of Dropbox now only supports three devices, which, okay, granted, for a lot of people, that's probably, <laughs> that's probably sufficient, uh, but it wasn't for me. And so basically for me to add Dropbox to this new device, I would have to remove Dropbox from some other devices I own where I want to use it as well. Of course, the other option is I could pay for the premium version of Dropbox, which is $10 a month to use it on as many devices as I wanted. So Dropbox is no longer gonna work for me and that was pretty much the last straw. So years ago, I'd, I'd already started thinking about moving away from Dropbox. And so I did some research on my own and went through a whole bunch, there's a whole bunch of other um, synchronizing services. And you've probably heard of a lot of them, I'm, you know, Google Drive, uh, Microsoft's OneDrive, uh, Box.com. Uh, these are some other very popular ones that, that, that people uh, will use to store and synchronize documents across computers in the cloud. But like Dropbox, all these services 
are encrypted. Uh, when your file's transmitting through the internet and when it's sitting on their servers, they should be encrypted, but they hold the key, not you, uh, which allows them to do some of the things I talked about a minute ago, to monetize some of your data and perhaps, I guess really, I mean, a, a rogue employee could get access to your files as well. And, you know, it's not ideal from a security and privacy standpoint. So I, I found one that I really liked called sync.com. That's S-Y-N-C.com. Uh, and I signed up for it and I, and I kind of, played with it and I used it for a few things, but, um, I never really got around to switching up, you know, everything from Dropbox over to this new sync.com until last week when this final straw hit me. And, uh, as it turns out, uh, another security podcast that I really like to listen to called security now, and, um, Steve Gibson is the main security guy on there and it's, it's more technical than this one. It's a lot longer than this. It's like a two to two and a half hour weekly podcast, but I really enjoy it. I listen to it every week. And, uh, I really trust this guy. He really knows what he's talking about. He is, he vets the things he talked about that he's the person who vetted LastPass, uh, And one of the reasons is it's one of the reasons I can wholeheartedly recommend LastPass as your password manager. He recently went through this same kind of a thing, different reasons, but decided he wanted to look for a truly private, what he calls TNO trust, no one service for file syncing. And he arrived at the same conclusion I did, uh, and sync.com it was the one he chose. And let me just give you a little quote from that TV or sorry, from that podcast. This is what he was talking about. The other services, he says, but what about Google drive, OneDrive, or box? You ask the Google terms of service gives their automated systems permission to access the data stored on their servers for the purpose of monetization through advertising. The Dropbox terms of service gives Dropbox employees and trusted third parties, whoever they may be, permission to access, view, and share the files stored on their servers at any time. The box.com terms of service gives box permission to view the files stored on their servers to ensure that users are in compliance with the box terms of service. And the Microsoft OneDrive terms of service gives Microsoft employees permission to view the files stored on their servers to ensure that users are in compliance with the Microsoft terms of service, unquote. So what does that all mean? So what it really means is probably through, you know, legalese that covers their butt, they don't want to be storing, let's say, copyrighted material. Like, let's say you're sharing movie files, you know, ripped music from your CDs or from whatever with other people that, you know, the rights owners, the content holders don't like you doing. So they actually will, in some cases, peruse through your folders to look and see if you've got any copyrighted material in there, which would violate their terms of service yada, yada. Um, but of course, giving them that ability also means they have the ability to see everything you have, look through your documents, look through your files, look through your folders and take note of what you have so that they might turn around and monetize that information about you as well. So while I know they're very popular, I know they're very common. I know that a lot of times you're given these things, you know, you buy one service and you get access to these things and you think, why wouldn't I use that? It's free now, or I've already paid for it. Well, privacy is the reason why. So sync.com on the other hand, is completely private. They cannot access your files. They do not know what it is. Everything is encrypted locally on your drive before it is sent to them. And just, you know, just some other things about sync.com. So Dropbox is actually very stingy with how much they give you to start with. I think they only give you two gigabytes of free space, whereas sync.com starts off with five gig free and you could do a little getting started tour and get another gig. So it's really six gig free. Uh, they do support two-factor authentication, which is great. Uh, if you refer a friend to sync.com, which I recommend you do, if you're going to try this out, send it to your friends and get them to sign up. It's all free. And for every friend that you refer, both of you will get an additional free gigabyte of space. Uh, and that's up to 20. So I think 20 referrals. So you could get basically 26 gigabytes of free storage, uh, very private, very secure, free storage through sync.com. Now, if you want, and I'm actually considering doing this myself, um, really jumping in with both fees and using it for other things besides just a few documents. Uh, for $60 a year, you can get 200 gigabytes of space. And for just $94 a year, you can get two terabytes. That's 2,000 gigabytes for uh, $94 a year. So, you know, I'm not even sure what I would do with that. <laughs> but, you know, if you are if you really want to store a bunch of stuff in the cloud, that's a great way to go. You know, maybe you want to, you know, if it, since now you know it's private and sync.com, you could put your photos in there. You could put your music in there, home movies and, you know, and store it all up in there. And that way it's kind of like a cloud backup. So there you have it. That's kind of my recommendation, my tip of the week. If you use Dropbox or if you use OneDrive or Google Drive or box.com or some of these, you know, kind of free services um, or services that may come along with some other products you bought, just realize that while they're very convenient and they're very useful, they're not very private. 
you know, so maybe, you know, maybe you don't put much stuff, you know, maybe you don't use Dropbox much and the things you put in there are really just silly things that, you know, flyers for your neighborhood party or, you know, invitations to your kid's birthday party. Well, actually, I would say that would be pretty private. But, you know, anyway, it, you'll have to make the call. But me personally, um, I finally decided that I'm just going to drop Dropbox and uh, move everything over to sync.com uh, and not look back. And I'll, I think it's a great decision and uh, it's much, much more private. Uh, they give you more uh, free space by default. And if you want to buy more, it's actually pretty cheap. So that is my tip of the week. All right, that was a long one. Thanks for hanging in there. But I uh, had some fun stuff I wanted to tell you about and catch you up on some news items. So uh, thanks for hanging in there. And next week, we'll have another interview. We're going to be talking with a gentleman named Amin Galani. He's from a company called 4IQ. And their thing is handling identity theft, not just dealing with it, but finding out trying to find out who it was who took your stuff, uh, including data breaches as well. So he's got an interesting perspective. We're going to talk about identity theft uh, in some great detail next week. So that'll be a fun interview. And if you want to uh, give sync.com a try, and if I don't know if you have Dropbox already or one of these other services, or maybe you weren't even aware these services existed, it's really pretty cool. And um, you can go to sync.com and check it out. Or I, actually, I'll, I'll go ahead and put a link. I'll put my referral link in the show notes for this program. So if you don't know anybody else who would want to try this and get yourself both a free gigabyte, uh, you can go to podcast.firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, find this episode, look in the show notes, and I'll put my referral link there and you can help us both out. We can both get a free gig. So it's really, you know, it's a really solid service. It's got some great features and it's private. It's actually private and secure. So give that a look. And as usual, you know, if you've got if you've got time, um, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything. And while you're there, drop a nice review on it. I'd give it a, give it some stars. I would really very much appreciate that. October again, National Cybersecurity Month. A great time to implement all those things you've been putting off. And a great way to do that is to uh, check out some of the 150 tips that are in my book. Uh, go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can find the information about the book about the book there. Uh, some other great resources too that you can look at and uh, access my blog entries. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, all that great stuff. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for the week. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, hope you have a fun Halloween that's coming up soon. Have fun and safe Halloween, and uh, stay safe out there. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>